Brahma Vihara means like divine abode. Uh, what's a divine abode? It's like a good place to hang out. Right? It's like, I would like to hang out in a divine abode. That sounds pretty nice, uh, I guess, depending on what your associations are with that. But, um, you know, uh, uh, metta, loving kindness, is one. Uh, compassion, uh, karuna is another. I think these have been at least touched on in the past weeks. Uh, mudita, uh, uh, sympathetic joy, which is a, uh, a great concept to have, and not one that I had come across anywhere else, at least not in America. Uh, United States. Mudita is like taking joy in the happiness and success of others. Do we have that in our culture here? Like, <laughs> I think we have it. Yeah, we just didn't have a, don't have a word for it. Yeah, so, Mudita is one a good one. That's not what I'm going to talk about tonight, and uh, uh, but worth mentioning. And then the the last one is is uh, upeka. And these these are Pali words, words from. Uh, you know, a language that the um, these early Buddhist discourses were first written down in. It's not actually the language that uh, that the Buddha spoke, as far as we know, um, but closely related. Uh, upeka means uh, equanimity, right? another good word. Uh, sometimes it's good to have a word for something. It kind of helps you know that it exists. Uh, it's interesting, actually. I hadn't made this connection before this moment, but I do a fair amount of commuting, and I've been listening to audiobooks in the car, and I've been revisiting some of my you know, kind of old favorites, and I've just, just been listening to 1984, again, George Orwell, and I was just finished it on my way up here, actually. <laughs> and, uh, of course, at the end, there's this appendix about Newspeak, this language that they are devising, this government is, <laughs> uh, the main goal of which is to eliminate words <laughs> so that you can't even think about uh, autonomy and freedom in any meaningful kind of way. Uh, it's trying to limit language as much as possible, but anyway, uh, having a word like equanimity is sort of uh, the opposite of that. It's good to have a word yeah, for... Uh, that points to something that, again, is not maybe a quality that we talk about explicitly or think about a lot in this culture, which is this uh, capacity for the mind to be uh, stable and balanced in the face of both the wanted and the unwanted, in the face of pleasure and pain, in the face of just the ups and downs of conditions uh, as they uh, are changing constantly. Uh, uh, in the face of what the Buddha called the eight uh, worldly dhammas or the eight worldly winds, you know, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, uh, praise and blame, uh, fame and ill repute. Anybody had any ill repute lately? <laughs> it's not fun. That one's not fun. I haven't had any lately, but, uh, was, you know, anyway. But we do cycle through these various states, right? Uh, and equanimity is this quality of the unshakable mind, 
Yeah, the mind that remains in balance, even in the face of uh, adversity, even in the face of uh, outer challenges, and especially in the face of inner uh, difficulty and turmoil. Uh, so it's maybe not that glamorous. Like, uh, you can't really show off equanimity, I don't think. <laughs> it's not flashy. It's sort of quiet. You, can, <laughs> you might not even notice it in people, but I think it's actually a quality that we uh, do notice on some level in people when it's present. Yeah, I think it's a quality that often we long for. Uh, it's deeply related to feeling at peace. And I think a lot of times people come to meditative practice because there's, there's one feels so caught in um, uh, just the ups and downs of outer life and especially the kind of movement of mind that's happening all the time. How am I doing? Am I doing well? Am I doing well enough? Am I doing... I'm where I need to be. I'm not where I need to be. I'm succeeding. I'm failing. I'm good enough. No, wait. Yes, I am. I'm better than. No, I'm worse than. I'm equal to just for a second. No, now I'm better than. Now I'm worse than. You know, sort of like this whole ranking system, which is constantly. And I think a lot of times people long for, uh, well, there's a, a longing for peace and stability of the a longing for some tranquility. Where can one find stillness? You go on vacation, and maybe you get a little stillness, but then you realize, oh, I brought my mind with me. You know, <laughs> you know who, who, who bought them a ticket? <laughs> you know, or who? Yeah, so that's, it doesn't solve it. You know, it's just, how do we work with this thing? And people come to meditation or Meditative practice, I think, uh, a longing for something, yeah. And sometimes we can find some kind of stillness just in uh, quieting the mind a bit, yeah. As we did in the formal practice today, just in being with the breathing, learning how to notice when your mind is, when you're getting caught up in your stories and being able to come back to something much more still and reliable, we start to experience some kind of stillness through that. So it's possible to feel still. Uh, and, um, but that's different than equanimity. Uh, equanimity is you know, the mind not doing this in relation to experience. Yeah? That's the way I kind of experience it. Something happens and the mind goes like that, you know? That's happening all the time, you notice? Somebody says something, you know, you think something. Yeah. This is being recorded, I just realized there's just going to be a pause and, and if it, as uh, anywhere, nobody's going to know what I'm talking about. I'm just, my whole body is shaking and it's kind of like backing away very quickly in a very jolting way, you know? That's like the opposite of relaxed. It's very hard to settle. After that, it takes a little time to settle again. 
you know, oh, oh. So, so the mind is like that, right? When it's unstable, it's like on edge. We know that state. Yeah? Uh, uh, I think often in our, when that state of mind gets very uh, normal, our nervous system conforms to it. Our nervous system, I think a lot of times, is kind of on edge, mind-body. Yeah? There's a lot of talk about that these days, mind-body, connection, sort of funny way to talk about it, but connection, it's like, this is all interrelated. The nervous system on edge, when the nervous system is on edge like this, very hard to have a sense of stillness. So, how does one develop equanimity, this? And sometimes you may taste it in meditation, the mind gets very quiet, very stable. Especially if you've been practicing for a little while, or you sit a retreat, you may taste this, where the mind gets very quiet, and then things are arising, like sensations in your body that are not pleasant, and the mind does not go like this. It's like the mind is still in the midst of discomfort. There's not a shaking. It's a very interesting thing to just experience even a little bit. And I know a lot of you have tasted this at some level, even if it's just in a life circumstance. Your mind happened to be in a condition where it was in balance, and something happened that normally would have really rattled you, and it didn't. That's a taste of equanimity. I would call that accidental equanimity. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey, I'm okay even with this happening. It's okay. But through meditative practice, we get stable. We're not just in this bop, 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 bop. So the home base, stable in awareness, being with the arisings moment by moment. And you can notice at times that even a state like fear uh, will arise and the mind, there's no kind of uh, reacting to it. It just, it's okay. That's the underlying feeling tone when the mind is in the state of equanimity, is that it's okay, even if what's arising is hard. Not it's okay like it's justifiable, but it is. Right? Even states of pain and discomfort, even you have a thought that normally you would, would send you down a dark hole, and it's, it just passes through and doesn't create a wave, it's not believed. That, again, that's something you may have experienced a little bit or at times. So the way one cultivates equanimity is not by trying to be equanimous. This is very important. Sometimes one hears the term equanimity, one thinks about uh, you know, in, well, in Buddhism, they talk about non-attachment, you know, it sounds kind of like, I will just not react to anything, you know. And then you see, and I've, I, we've all, I've done this, so I can talk about it. I've attempted this, trying not to react to things, trying to be unperturbed, and it looks like this. 
it's I call that fake equanimity. <laughs> you know, it's uh, that's not it. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Or it's called that's called like detaching. You know, so that it's sometimes in the traditions like it's uh, talked about as the near enemy of equanimity. It's like indifference, or you call it detaching, or disassociating, or you know, leaving in some way. Yeah. Uh, men are good at this. Sometimes we've we've had training in that. You know, you look. It's just your conditioning as a man. You're not supposed to be emotional or feel things. Actually, this is just what you've learned from other men. You haven't, of course, made perhaps, and this is a little bit too gendered, you know, but uh, perhaps there's been some encouragement to not be so um, uh, disconnected from the feeling dimension, but in, in general, there's a, a lot of conditioning for men around not feeling. So that could look like equanimity. I'm okay. But that's not equanimity. That's detachment. Yeah, that's being disconnected. So equ- equanimity is developed really through being with things the way they are. That's the way we cultivate true equanimity. By choosing again and again to meet this moment fully. Whatever it contains. As far as I can tell, there's no way around that. You may go on a retreat and experience the mind get extremely still, very, very powerful. When we're not so distracted, the mind can be incredibly powerful, incredibly balanced, and literally it can feel like it is imperturbable. Almost like nothing can affect presence. And yet, that is not a substitute for being with the full range of human experience. That that can stay on retreat for people. One has to bring it into the fullness of one's life. Otherwise, it's not, you know, another way of talking about it is, you know, sometimes what I think of as like a true elder, like this kind of like, maybe even a mythological thing, does it even have this quality? They've really lived life, been through suffering, been through, and there could be a quality of settledness yeah, in things as they are. So that's something that we are cultivating by choosing to show up. Who wants to do that? Well, maybe we all do on some level and are also scared of it on another level. You don't have to do it all the time, but it's a very, very powerful thing to practice. Uh, We practice it in the formal sitting. The instruction is to find some primary object of attention like the breathing, and then to be with what arises from moment to moment, sensations in the body, feelings and emotions, states of mind and body, thoughts in the mind. We practice being with them moment by moment. And then, as I said in the break, carrying this awareness into just interacting. What's it like to sit and nobody's talking to you and you feel lonely? Well, you could go get a cookie. 
or you could uh, pull out your phone. That's what we specialize in now. I got a million friends, as Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan said. I got a million friends. Uh, so, what's it like occasionally to choose not to do that? To practice? Oh, can I be with this feeling right here? Well, your spare rock, it's a good reminder. Oh. These states and feelings and experiences, most of them internal, that we are constantly running from. That's the opposite of equanimity. Uh, we're scared of ourselves because we've never learned how to be fully present with everything that's happening in here. We don't even know what's in here. That was part of what interested me when I started practicing. I realized I have no idea what's going on in here. And this is what's determining my whole life, the way I'm experiencing it. I wonder what's on TV. No. Not, I wonder what's on TV. I wonder what's going on in here. You know? I was, I was lucky that that happened to me before I had a cell phone. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't, maybe I didn't have anything else to do. So I spent a lot of time, a better part of six years, looking <laughs> in here. I was very, I'm glad. Yeah. And... Uh, well, I still do that, so it didn't end after, but that was sort of a concentrated period of time. So this is the, the turning that we often don't do, just here. Rather than turning, yeah, or can we turn here again and again and again to meet what's happening moment by moment as we sustain awareness and practice being aware those moments of awareness start to connect and there starts to be a continuity of presence waking up in our life as it is and we start to attend to what is here moment by moment and this is how true equanimity develops. We get used to being with experience. It doesn't mean you will never be rattled but your capacity, our capacity it, like the range of experience that we can be with starts to go like this. Yeah? The range of experience you can be with without running away, without making it okay through some story about your life. Uh, no, really, this is going to be fine. I'll just do this and this and this. The range of experience we can be with in, expands in both directions. As uh, my teacher from Burma used to say, they, people ask him, why does enlightenment or awakening happen in st stages, phases? That's their system. Doesn't mean it's that way. But, and his response was, because if it didn't happen in stages, you wouldn't be able to tolerate the pain or the joy. This is important because a lot of times our idea is I'll just meditate and it'll all just get more and more joyful. And I just won't have as much of the difficult things happen. Yeah? Even subtly people think that's true. It'll just get easier and easier when actually 
it also can be the quite the opposite. I think that's a good thing and a worthy thing. But it's not for the faint of heart. So a lot of times people have the idea that in, through meditating I will get rid of my fear and I'll get rid of my anger, I'll get rid of frustration, I will get rid of things like need, that feeling of needing or depending or feeling vulnerable. I just won't have that. I'll have rock-solid equanimity. I won't need anything, baby. I'll just be... I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's all good. Uh, so that, I just want to save you time. <laughs> that doesn't go anywhere good. Uh, but if you're like me, nobody can save you time. You get hard, hard-headed. You have to learn it yourself. <laughs> So that, that's why all your wanderings on the path are, are useful. Even when you could look back and be like, did I have to do that? Did I have to go that far in that, following that idea? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, but, no. So to start welcoming these things when they're present, and, and to recognize that as the path. Oh, I feel really vulnerable. Can I practice sitting with that for like a few seconds? If you sit with it for a few seconds, you can then go do something else. And, but then you get, then maybe you do it a few seconds longer. It's very hard. It's so simple to talk about this stuff. Sometimes it feels like I talk about the same thing all the time. It's kind of true. But I think it's also the, mo- the most important thing. <laughs> you know, but uh, it's like the mind is always doing this. You know, in response to even things that are so, like, not that bad. And that's one thing that I think is just why it's so important to do that turning towards. So you can see what you're running from all the time. We literally a moment of a feeling a little lag of energy and people go to the phone or go to the internet. It's like the energy lags and it's like there's a turning away already as if that were intolerable. It only seems intolerable because we haven't faced it and realized almost none of these things that we are running from are that scary. I mean, some of them are really scary. But they're not that scary. They're scary in the way that, you know, from the beginning of time, these myths are about, you know, facing demons. That's scary. You know, fighting dragons and things like that. That's scary. And, but that's the territory. That's... These things inside, we have not faced them. Take some time to do that. I remember there was one 
person who came to some of my groups. And I remember saying one time, occasionally I have a student like this, it's very inspiring. I said something just casually about how we do almost anything to avoid being with things the way they are. And so she said, I had a weekend and I just didn't have anything to do. I decided I'm just going to sit and be with things the way they are. And I did that all weekend. I thought, that's cool. She just sat, not even meditating. That is a powerful practice. What's it, I mean, could you do that occasionally for like half an hour? Not even meditate. I mean, meditate by all means, please do. It's great to have a daily practice and to just, you know, to sit with yourself until you can stand it. <laughs> you know? That's uh, a kind of, without any training, it's hard to do that. You just sit with yourself and be lost in stories the whole time. That's why the practice is so powerful and important, the formal practice. Because it gives you the tools, the capacity. It gives you something to do. Uh, until you can do it well enough that you're not just totally lost in the spin cycle. Have enough stability to be able to watch this happen. And then you can practice like that. Even watch it a little bit. Yeah. Without any training, I think it's just too... I know for me, it was just like to get too lost. It's just a story about a story about a story. And then you're tinkering with stories. And then when you leave, or you're done, you just had a bunch of stories. So to, to practice in this way, quieting the mind, that's what the unifying the mind, that's what the Buddha called samatha, shamatha. Yeah? And then seeing clearly into the nature of what's arising, meeting each moment with clear seeing, that's what is called vipassana, insight. Shamatha vipassana, samatha vipassana. This is the way, when we talk about vipassana meditation, that's what the way it's traditionally talked about, samatha vipassana, together. And this is what we practice. Uh, and this naturally develops equanimity. It, it's a byproduct. So it's good to have a word for it, so you can have a sense of like, oh, the, a direction. Yeah? You can look for it. Oh, is that... Is there a sense of equanimity that's even in a little way increasing or becoming more noticeable? Sometimes that's a good you know, barometer. Yeah? It's not becoming blissful all the time. It's looking for that quality of stability of mind. It can be quite remarkable. Uh, and sometimes just, you know, like I remember practicing in Burma, for a while, and then I had a medical thing happen, and they had to, I was, they had to take me to a doctor. And um, I was in this really bumpy, unpaved road in this car slash Jeep with like very, very bad shocks. So it was like, and the mind was not moving. It was like there was no movement happening. It's very interesting. There was all of this movement and yet stillness through it. Yeah. That's just a state. That's not any kind of a attainment. But it's good. It's, it's, those are moments that are good pointers. Oh, the mind can be still even in the midst of 
great movement. The mind can be still even in the face of uh, pain. The mind can be still even in the face of a huge emotion. Not the mind can be still in the absence of emotion, sure. The mind can be still in the midst of fear. It's very good to experience this. And when it gets still is when you're not afraid of the fear and it's fully okay for it to be there, then the mind isn't going like this. And that is the solution to all of these states. We think the solution is in solving it or getting rid of it, but it's not. That is an endless, impossible task, and you will, will tire yourself needlessly in the midst of every inner state, you, there is stillness. But the practice, not that you should feel that all the time or experience it, even if you experience it sometimes, you won't experience it all the time. But the pointer is, it comes in being able, the capacity to welcome what's happening and to not be afraid of it. And you can't will yourself into that. The only way that comes about is through practicing it ruthlessly again and again all the time. You don't have to practice it perfectly. Nobody can and nobody does. You don't have to be aware all the time. Nobody can and nobody does. But just to have that be part of what you do, why not? Your life is happening anyway. You might as well be here for it. When you are aware, learning happens by itself. That's the magic of this kind of meditative practice. You don't have to worry about learning. You don't have to worry about developing equanimity. It happens by itself from showing up again and again. That's what we're here to do. That's what we do. It's, uh, uh, it's not complicated, but it's really hard to do it. <laughs> and that's why we have this whole thing going, the center. That's why we have teachings. That's why we come together to support each other in doing this. This is, I think, what mature human beings do. Uh, maybe there have been a few throughout history. <laughs> but, you know, what a, what a worthy thing. And for uh, those of you who have been practicing a long time, don't think you know this territory. Look at all the places where you're not comfortable. You will find them. You haven't solved it. I'm just saying this in case you have that thought. Yeah. There's always places to look where you are hanging out in some idea or you are keeping yourself protected with some kind of defensive shield. And it's just to notice where that is. You don't have to rush the process. Include, include, include. So, let's see. Let me just think for a moment before I... Is there anything else I want to say about this equanimity? Um, yeah. 
uh, have, being equanimous does not mean, and I say this for the political realm and the realm of being active in the world, it does not mean being indifferent. Uh, not many of us can really let in suffering, pain, uh, injustice, feeling, other people's pain, and tolerate it. The capacity to do so allows us to be empathic and effective. So this stillness of mind is not like, oh, the mind is unperturbed. I'll just hang out. Nothing matters. It's really not that. But having the mind not be doing this allows you to act, to see and to act without a gap, yeah? and without a reactive acting. So that is, that's like the functioning of equanimity, acting out of balance. How do we act when the mind is in a state of balance? We tend to act in a more true way, less out of fear. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to see clearly when this is happening. Right? It's like the opposite of stillness. Uh, uh, so, yeah. So now we, you know, now we have a word for something. Um, you can uh, use it as a weapon. You're not being very equanimous now, are you? I'm joking. Don't do that to people. Use it for yourself. You know? Don't use it on your partner or your spouse or your, your children. Spare them. But use it, <laughs> use it for yourself. Just as a barometer. Oh, it's just... Uh, Again, it's, a, it's a, a goal that's outside of the realm of uh, what registers in our society as uh, achievement. Yeah. It's uh, quiet, humble, it might go unnoticed. But it won't be unnoticed in you. Even a little bit of balance of mind, stability of mind, a little bit of equanimity is, goes a long way. It's a palpable difference. So, anything you want to talk about in terms of either what I've talked about tonight or just your own practice of uh, whatever it is you're practicing? Sometimes we have the idea we're all doing the same thing. Yeah, well, go ahead. How does that fit in with that second arrow thing? Uh, you know, where you Sean, do we, have a, do we have a mic? It's right there. Oh, thank you. How does that fit in with the second arrow? Well, thing? yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you suffer the, the pain or the, the outrage or whatever it yeah. is, and uh, if, if you don't, if you don't um, uh, react, I mean, if you're, if you're in a state of equanimity, uh, maybe the second arrow doesn't, you don't employ the second arrow. Is that yeah. part of the thing? That's... I think that could very well be the case. Yeah. yeah. So he's saying, you know, there's this teaching about two arrows. Usually something happens, and that's like the first arrow. 
but then our response to it habitually is to rather this is an old analogy that the Buddha used rather than remove the arrow like a, the thought or attend to what's happening first emotion we have another thought about it which kind of like is like shooting yourself with a second arrow just perpetuating that cycle and yeah when you can meet the first thing that happens fully often there doesn't have to be a proliferation about it uh, and so much of what we're caught up in, the, in, in, in in our lives is mental proliferation. One thing, one thought leads to a gazillion thoughts. And then you've spent two days in some state. Yeah? And it's perpetuated by thinking. Uh, and there's a, a Pali term for that. And it's, it's like a onomatopoeia. Is that how you say that? It's called papancha. It sounds like the thing. Mental proliferation. We specialize. We all have PhDs in that. (laughs) A PhD doesn't help, actually. That really. uh, Anybody else? Yeah, in the back. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over here. Uh, Can you put your hand up again? Thank you, Will. Sure. Um, you, you spoke of uh, indifference, mm-hmm. and I think um, that's a really important thing to kind of notice in yourself. And I was wondering if you could um, articulate on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what struck you about it? I'm just curious. Like, what? Uh... Um, I think it's easy to just put things off to the side and. And, and if there's a heavy emotion or, mm-hmm. or whatever's going on, yeah. um, it's easy to check out. And I think to really meet it is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But maybe to be really conscious of that checking out or yeah. um, uh, being good at noticing that. Um, I don't know if there's any anything that you could... Um, offer us, but I think it's something that, or catching it is mm-hmm. seems to be the the best thing. Have a have a have a big net or something, you know, just to be able to catch yourself. Yeah. Well, you're offering us something. Oh yeah. Maybe. I mean, that's a beautiful point, you know, and really important that it's not just meeting what's happening; it's noticing all the ways that you don't. That's really really useful. I really appreciate you bringing that up. That's that's a that's very important. It's like uh, I almost like more important at first, perhaps. It's just to see all the ways we avoid, so we get to know that, get to know ourselves in that way, and also then to just you know the word the term that comes to my mind is just baby steps. You know, you don't have to do it all at once. It's not like, I will be with it the way, you know, that's too much. It's too, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, just, but just a little bit. Yeah, can, I, can I just maybe feel a little bit? I, you know, I know I'm hurting. It sort of feels like it's off in the distance somewhere. Can I just like get a little closer to it? Just like 
not directly, sometimes facing things, especially like emotions, sometimes they, they're shy. They don't like it when you're like, ha, I gotcha. You know, vulnerability. Uh, then it, you sort of like, it gets vague. But if you kind of like saddle up to it sideways, kind of like, I know you're over there. You know, so just that little bit of like getting a little closer, I think that goes a long way. Uh, but yeah, another way of talking about these state ways of avoiding is like protecting, you know, and, and it's good to be compassionate with ourselves about that and empathic towards ourselves because we often have needed protection in our lives. Yeah. We, we, you know, don't, those states that maybe now are like really fine to be with, Maybe we're overwhelming at some point, maybe at a very early age. So we found ways, we find ways of protecting ourselves from those things. And that's, a, that's functional, that's useful. So that those protections have served us well. You know, uh, we develop psychological defenses. Those are not just bad things. And yet now that we can cultivate awareness, there's sort of like something to replace them. Yeah? So we don't just get rid of our defenses, we replace them with awareness and uh, stability of mind. So we develop the, the capacities to be able to meet what's there. Uh, so it's very important though to have empathy for like all the ways that, oh wow, that, now I can start to be with this, but maybe it wasn't okay to be with this before. Uh, that, that's important, so we don't make them bad or wrong. Yeah. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Yeah, over here. Um, I sometimes I think of that indifference as like a spiritual bypass, especially when you have people who are. I have a lot of these in my family who are. Um, everything's great. It's all really good. <laughs> yeah. And I just did, you know, three hours of yoga and it's all good. But then if I try to bring up any sort of family history or mm-hmm. things that are that in the past have, mm-hmm. you know, been gone gone on in my family, everybody I get the feeling from them that I should just be quiet and that I um, am rocking the boat because I it's it's more of like the spiritual um like somehow because I have emotions or because I, that I'm not evolved. Yeah. And so it's that sort of, um, I don't really know how to work with it, honestly, because sometimes I end up walking away going, oh yeah, I wish I was as indifferent, you know, or mm-hmm. I wish I, I, but I don't know what to say to, you know, I, I, I guess like maybe they are really spiritually evolved or maybe they're just really shut off. And it's like, mm-hmm. how do you know the difference? Like, how do you work with that? Or how do you, what do you do to address somebody who's working with you mm. to make them maybe think like if they're doing a spiritual bypass? Cause I mean, people can meditate and still do a spiritual bypass. Uh, yeah. It makes you really better at it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You develop the capacity to really bypass some stuff. <laughs> I think that's a fairly good term, by, you know, spiritual bypass. It, you know, it's sort of like you can, some people can do it very successfully temporarily. It's always temporarily. Uh, what can you do when other people are doing that? Not much. It's really 
but it's it's good to recognize so that you can also validate for yourself. You know, it's sort of a that's not uncommon. You know, it's not uncommon in spiritual communities. You know, uh, if you have a problem with what's happening, or you're feeling, you know, there's not room for people to express their discomfort because it's unevolved. And when that's the case, you know that community is going to implode at some point. Right? It, it always does. Uh, because that's when, you know, that's when bad things start to happen. Yeah. So, uh, you know, without being too dramatic about it, it's just really good to recognize so that you don't do that. You know, and so that you can hold to what you know. And sometimes it's hard to. You don't know, like you're saying. It feels like, like I shouldn't be ignoring what's happening here. But maybe that is more evolved. It certainly looks more convenient. Yeah. And so I, I don't think there's a solution to it. In my experience, people who don't, haven't come to you for help really don't like things being pointed out to them about how they're misconstruing reality. <laughs> uh, I haven't had much success with that, and I don't even like it when people do it to me, you know? Uh, actually, that's not true. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better with that. Uh, but, I'll, yeah, it's not... It's, it's very hard, and, and it's, it's, but it's good, you know, that, that can't last forever. Because, uh, yeah. So, so I think it's important to, note, to, to work with that in mind, you know, so that you're not just putting on the enlightened face. I don't know what that would be. But your idea of the enlightened face, you know, that's always a made-up thing. If you're putting on a face and it's the enlightened face, then you have no idea. <laughs> so, uh, but, or even just the smile, like, I like everybody. I feel only loving kindness towards all beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This happens at retreat centers. Yes, that's it, yes. I feel only loving kindness towards all beings. Hey, don't sit there. You know, that's where so-and-so sits and you, you know. What? You know? You know? It comes out in weird ways, you know. So yeah, I thought we were, uh, yeah. So yeah, again, there's this aspect of um, of uh, uh, it's almost like an energetic aspect of practice, you know, including the energies of the human realm in awareness and working with them. Uh, if you don't include the energies, the energies get split off, they act weird on their own, or you, you end up feeling dead and disconnected. That's what happens from splitting off from your feeling realm and from your energetic realm. It, it, it ends up being dead. A lot of people come to practice because they don't feel fully alive. And, uh, and so it, this including is a vehicle for regaining some of that aliveness, yeah, but not, it's not unconscious aliveness, it's not like, yeah, now I'm feeling my rage, let's like, just, you know, go crazy, or now I'm feeling, you know, I'm in touch with whatever, and let's just, 
No, it's like with awareness. Then those energies can be used and utilized. They can be metabolized by the organism. Yeah? Uh, and sometimes there is a process of like, uh, you know, the voltage increases. And this is where the mechanical metaphor breaks down. But it's like the, the wires or whatever. You see how untechnical I am in a moment. They can't handle the voltage. So where the metaphor breaks down is the wires adapt to handle more current through relaxing, breathing with, including, and more current can run. You know, more current of what you would call it life energy, call it emotion. It all has energy in it. Wow, this sounds really California y, but it's real, you know, in my experience. I'm just using that word. You can translate it to whatever new speak word you want to use. Yeah. It's like the energies of it. And then, yeah, again, embracing an awareness. It's very, very uh, powerful and useful. And you can, you can tell when it's split off, when you develop an eye for it, when there's a bypass happening. You can feel it. And so, yeah, we don't want to cultivate that or practice it. But So some people are spiritual bypassing. Some people are doing all kinds of other unconscious things. And we have to live in the world with people being as they are. And a big part of our equanimity is learning to accept in a way. Not accept like people should be doing whatever harmful thing they're doing, you know. But learning to not get bent out of shape with other people being what they are. And imperfect. Because guess what? It's true here too, you know. And actually, in the this kind of formal equanimity practice that is sometimes done, it's actually done with phrases that are about, you know, recognizing that other people's lives are unfolding in a way that's not dependent on your wishes for them. You know, I think some of the tradi- the phrasing is sort of like, "You are the o-, when you're you're thinking about somebody, saying, you are the owner of your own karma." Your happiness or unhappiness depends on your actions and not on my wishes for you. It's something we don't often like fully recognize, but that's a kind of equanimity in relation. That's how we cultivate equanimity in relation to other people, realizing, wow, you are not subject to my control. As much as I really wish you were. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in certain ways. Yeah, over here. Oh, uh, I always forget, what time do we end here? Do we end at? At quarter past nine, okay, yeah. yeah uh, you just used the phrase uh, formal equanimity practice, mm-hmm. and, but earlier you were talking about equanimity as if it's a, uh, 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 more of a fruit of, uh, yeah. of all the other practice. Yeah. So can you say more about formal equanimity practice? Cause oh, you caught me. <laughs> there is a formal equanimity practice. I don't think it, it, I think it's okay, you know, it's, it's okay for something. It's a helpful, like, thought, it's a way of holding a thought in mind, you know, like a useful thought, which is looking at how, you know. uh, Can you give maybe one example of how I might incorporate uh-huh. That yeah. formal equanimity. Yeah, you you sit down, you imagine somebody in your life, and you say to your you say in your internally, you are the owner of your own actions. Your happiness or unhappiness is dependent on your actions and not on my wishes for you. 
and then you feel that and you say it again. You know, you are the owner of your own karma or your own action. Your happiness or unhappiness is good to do with your, if you have, uh, you know, children who are either in the teenage years or uh, adults, it's very useful, this little thing. You are the owner of your, it's very hard as a parent. I'm a parent of a teenager too, but also younger kids. Even with younger kids, it's sort of a useful thing. But you are the owner of your own actions. This is, it's good to do with any family member. Yeah. It's good post-Thanksgiving and pre-Hanukkah Christmas. You are the owner of your own actions. Your happiness or unhappiness is dependent on your actions and not on my wishes for you. That's a useful thought. And a lot, some of these formal Brahma-Vihara practices are ways of just holding a useful thought in mind and feeling it. Yeah? So it's another avenue in. Uh, so yeah, I do feel like, in a way, the real, the real, they're both real practices. They're complementary. It's not one or the other. Um, that's very useful in a social realm in which we really often... Are, are sort of like semi-individuated from each other, you know, not really recognizing the separateness, you know, not and in a way then denying each other's autonomy, you know, uh, and not letting ourselves have freedom in relationship to the people who are near and dear to us. And it's really hard. I mean, with ch- with your children or the people who are close to you or your, you know, friends, it can be really hard to see them doing something that you know is not a good idea or causing themselves suffering or causing other people suffering it's very hard to see that and not be able to change to change it um, i'm guessing that doesn't i'm guessing that doesn't subtract from your good wishes for them so it's completely a separate yeah and i think sometimes we don't notice that part yeah uh, but yeah i think that's very true Anybody else? Okay. Oh, okay. We'll take one more. Um, I recently uh, had the experience at Thanksgiving being with some family members of um, feeling less than equanimous. Uh-huh. You're per- the only one, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I was wondering, in terms of like personality traits uh-huh. and such, mm-hmm. one's own and other yeah. people's, um, any tips about equanimity around that sort of thing? Yeah. Or sure. good practice? Yeah. Personality traits are not personal. You know, I think that's a good thought to hold in mind. You don't choose your personality, you know, and uh, and sometimes that's like we don't recognize how, and this is another aspect of insight that leads to equanimity, is kind of really seeing what we are not in control of and what is not personal, what arises due to conditions, many of which, not only are they beyond our control, but we don't even know, you know, sort of like, yeah, 
we can all think about our family members and how did they come out that particular way? And yet they are, you know, and there's some consistency in personality. And it's also not who, it's like when you, when you have insight into what, into, the, into how your own process arises, and that's why this inner insight is so important. Because when you really see deeply into how your own personality, what you call personality or sense of self, is constellated, it's the same way for everybody. Even though the shape is different, yeah? they're conditioned thoughts and behaviors, some of which maybe they're conditioned by previous lifetimes, if you go in for that cosmology, or just weird genetics, if you want to call it something else. You know, the mystery of genetics, you know, or, and, uh, and it's really useful to see that. It's like, oh, you are not deciding what thoughts arise in your head. If you cultivate awareness, which maybe you've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to come into contact with a practice, you've been fortunate enough to have something in you that resonated with that, who can determine why that happens for some people? I have not been able to determine. That would be in the realm of whatever people say, karma, or who knows what. That's another way of saying it. Who knows why at some times that becomes important for people. And yet, yeah, you know, why does my uncle so-and-so who will rename, specific person who will remain unnamed, behave in that really obnoxious way? It's a mystery to me. And I think to him, too. <laughs> uh, but it's really good to see what is not personal. And actually, this is, a, this is the core of the Buddha's insight. Anatta, not self. As we sit with ourselves, we see that everything that arises in us is not self. It's not, it arises due to conditions. None of it is, you can look at and say, that is who I am. And you can see the patterning, and yet there's no central one to whom any of it is happening. It's when you see this, then you know it. And you know it is true, not only in you, but it's also true in others. And then you can see that even people doing really terrible things, it is due to conditions. Yeah? It doesn't mean they don't need to be stopped. But even that is not as personal as we sometimes think. Yeah. People, you know, just, I mean, there are examples in the news all the time from all over the world. Yeah. But, you know, recent news items and, you know, uh, it's like, this is conditioning. And this is why education and why awareness and why is so important. Because luckily, as human beings, our con- we can change our conditioning by adding new factors, yeah? by seeing more clearly. That's why awareness and why you know, um, increasing awareness around certain topics and certain domains is so important. So when it's in awareness, people can recognize it, and that changes behavior. And so that's very, very important. And it's also not personal. And if we make it personal, then we really get bent out of shape. And that makes activism unsustainable. Because it's too infuriating to be steadily involved in whatever it is. Whatever the, you know, the 
the area, the domain that needs attending to and changing. So, is it okay, Nick? Note to close on for the evening. So let's uh, just sit together for a moment and we'll do a, a kind of a dedicating of the merit. First of all, I'd like to thank all of the volunteers this evening who have uh, welcomed you at the gate and helped us to uh, have this room look as beautiful as it does. And uh, it makes uh, what I do also very easy. And so thank you and deep bow to all of you. Um, so may we all continue... Uh, to look deeply into the nature of things. May we see things, meet things, as they are. And may this clear and sustained knowing free us for the sake of all beings. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.